Holidays are right around the corner, and you may be looking for a perfect gift for that cyclist in your life. Hey, why not give them the Active Pass or Velo News Pass digital memberships to VeloNews.com? You've heard me talk about Active Pass and Velo News Pass. I'll talk about Active Pass first. $99 for a year. You get a print magazine subscription to Velo News, exclusive members only content across all of our Pocket Outdoor Media websites, tickets to the 2020 Warren Miller virtual tour, industry pro deals from companies like Scratch Labs and Jordana, training plans from today's plan to VeloPress books, free and discounted entry to Roll Massif events, and much, much more. Right now, you can get it for a discount. Usually it's 99 bucks for the whole year. It is on sale for $70 right now. And our VeloNews Pass, which gives you exclusive access to all the cool stuff on VeloNews.com, 35 bucks. For the year. So check it out. Go to VeloNews.com forward slash active pass. And uh, if you have a cyclist in your life, you're looking for the perfect gift for them, uh, think about VeloNews Pass and Active Pass. Okay, let's get on with the podcast. Uh, welcome back to the Velo News Podcast. Fred Dreyer coming to you on Tuesday afternoon. Uh, the pep in my step that has been uh, in my voice over the last few months may be gone. It might be a little slower than normal because um, the 2020 World Tour season has ended and my coffee guzzling just to keep up with the news feed and the news churn, um, I've stopped that. So it's going to be kind of like – it's going to be like a subdued, unplugged podcast today uh, as we dig into the Welta España 2020 World Tour season closer, some of the cool stories around there. And then um, – Second part of the show, I actually have an interview with Leland Danes and Christy Moan of Lifetime. They are the two managers of Unbound Gravel, the big gravel race you probably knew as DK or Dirty Kanza. You may have seen the news that that race went through a name change. Now it's called Unbound Gravel. We had a big story on the site. And Christy and Leland are going to take us inside the name change. And you know, <laughs> it's funny. I report, I've reported on like, branding changes and name changes over the year and as an outsider i always think it was really easy it's like hey what's the big deal you just come up with the just come up with a name call it whatever it's a bike race it's a sporting team it's whatever no that's not the way it works there's committees and there's brainstorming sessions and lawyers and all sorts of interesting things that go into it and things that need to be considered when choosing a successful name so that you don't call your gravel race like i don't know the andrew hood classic or something. Uh, I would call my, my gravel race the Andrew Hood Classic. Speaking of the Andrew Hood Classic, we have classic Andrew Hood on the line today from the Man Cave in Spain. We're going to talk all about uh, Vuelta España before we get to Christy and Leland. Andy, um, first off, give us uh, a hoodie update. You know, you guys have re-entered lockdown in Spain, but this time you're doing so having shaved and bathed as opposed to last time when you, you went full mountain man. Um, what's going on in the man cave? Yeah, I'm actually going to start the, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the, the COVID beard part two. I've decided just let it grow until we're not quite in lockdown yet. They've closed the bars and the restaurants, which is almost worse because uh, we can kind of like go out and walk around, but there's nothing to do. Um, uh, but speaking of gravel, they did a nice gravel ride today, two hours. Uh, if, if I start sneezing during this podcast, it's because it was like one of those rider high days and, uh, my, my rider high limit is usually 10 degrees celsius which i think is about 62 <laughs> maybe it's a little bit colder than that but my my threshold is not very you know my threshold is like i mean i think 10 degrees is around 50 or not 50 maybe a little less i don't know but it's like my my my, my cold threshold is is very very high so my my i have a 10 degree ride or hide rule and today i was like nine degrees and blustered i said to hell with it i'm gonna go for a ride beautiful kind of tail end of the fall colors but uh I might start sneezing during this podcast, and that's why. 50-degree rider high rule. Andy, we're going to have to take away your Coloradan card. Come on, buddy. <laughs> Going soft over here in the, in the old old Europe, you know. So, But, uh, you know, I mean, the gravel is – uh, you know, I love riding the gravel. You're just out there by yourself. I saw some, uh, saw some deer out there and uh, – Got stuck in a couple of mud puddles, but I was it was good. Good for the mind more than anything. Right? Yeah, it's better than better than hiding for sure. Um, we got some snow out here. It's cold. I'm gonna go head out after the podcast because the sun's come out. Because my rider my rider hide uh, temperature is down in the 30s, man. I've been getting up early and doing these like 5:30 a.m. 
um, waking session rides because little baby's still asleep then and um, I'm, I'm able to like squeeze my ride in before the insanity day of the day starts. But it's been cold. There have been some mornings where it's like I have like one brain cell functioning. It's cold. I go out there with a bunch of lights. And yeah, thank God for gravel because I should definitely not be on city streets for those uh, rides. Hey, Hoodie, let's talk Welta. Um, our final Grand Tour of the year wrapped up on Sunday. Mr. Primo's Roglic defended his win. And it was a pretty thrilling penultimate stage. Stage 17 to Alto de la Covatia finished on this high climb out the bar- this barren climb, wide open. And uh, Roglic had to work for this one. We saw Richard Carapaz do everything that he could. And Hugh Carthy just attack the hell out of him on this final climb. And, and Roglic had to dig deep to hold on to red. I mean, what did you make of that? penultimate stage stage 17 the big summit finish what are some of your takeaways you had from uh, from watching that thing yeah i thought it was a really fitting ending to what was a pretty good pretty cool welta i thought uh you know different time of the year you know in this whole covid season there were a lot of nerves about you know if there's going to be you know cases within the peloton that the race might be canceled by the health authorities here in spain because the, the situation is getting worse plus the weather you know we have uh, you know northern the whole route this year was in northern Spain, so there was some fear of you know snow or just a hurricane blowing in and and uh, you know disrupting the race. But the race went off, and every day, in fact, Roglic kind of said, you know, he raced this well to like every day was a classic, and that's the way it almost felt. It was like there wasn't really kind of a narrative. There was no real dominating team, and I talked to a few riders, and they said basically they were just going out there and just thrashing themselves every day. So it was quite the casino. For, I thought it was quite entertaining. You know, 18 days, you know, you take away a few of those uh, transition stages that don't sometimes have that much of an impact on the race. And I thought it was like a kind of an interesting model, really 18 stages as opposed to 21, a few, few less days on the whole uh, of the whole experience. But it all kind of came down to let look over to you climb. Uh, you know, time bonuses played a big role in this welter. I think, uh, you know, Roglic was the, the first rider uh, since the early 80s to kind of win a Grand Tour-based that the time difference in winning were the time bonuses. And, you know, Carpaz and Carthy just threw it, threw it at him. And it was really mano mano in that last climb. A little bit of a polemica there with the Movistar kind of race. You know, they said they were racing their own race, but, you know, Roglic hitched a ride there for a little bit. It might have helped save the day for Roglic on La Covetia. He was a happy camper, though, in Madrid, wasn't he? Yeah, he looked pretty happy. I mean, I think. One, he's obviously happy to win the race and, you know, you win four stages. If you win four stages and don't win the race, that's like, you know, that, that's not great, especially if you're a GC rider like him. Um, so, hey, win a Grand Tour in the year when you're supposed to win the Tour de France. Eh, you end up with a Welta España win. Um, that's reason to be happy. But I was also thinking like, he's got to be happy because what the hell happens if this race doesn't go for him on La Cavatia. Like the alternative of him winning is like, this is a disaster of all disaster years for uh, a Grand Tour rider at that level. It's like, if you lose the Tour de France after dominating with your team on the penultimate stage, like that's one thing that's, you know, that's a heartbreaker, but you can come back from that. But if you then go turn around and like dominate the Welta and lose in heartbreaking fashion on the penultimate day, like the last real day of racing, like, I can't imagine the, you know, agony that would come from that and the what ifs and the like the looking back and like retracing all of your, you know, moves, especially a tight race like that where, you know, the Welta organizers definitely, they got what they were looking for, which is a tight race, time bonuses, you know, thrilling finishes to the line on these steep little climbs um, and, and really no knockout punch. Like that's when I think about this. This year's Welta, there was no real knockout punch. So if Roglic had done this and had this strong team and won four stages and then, you know, blown it on the last real day of racing, like that would be, that would just be something that would, I feel like would stay with him for the rest of his career. Yeah, it's interesting because when you look at how Roglic raced this race, he was really just as dominating as he was at the tour. I think the big difference in this Welta, though, was that hiccup he had on the Formigal stage. Remember when he uh, messed up uh, with his rain jacket over the top of that last climb, the Punosumic climb, got gapped out, and that's where uh, Sepp Kuz got dropped. And that was kind of a disaster day that day for, for um, Yumbo Visma. Uh, I remember, you know, he chased back on, but he had to huge, do a huge effort just to get back onto that GC group. 
And then, of course, Carapaz popped him that day. And Carapaz uh, got the red jersey that day. So I think that might have haunted him more, perhaps, than, uh, you know, maybe losing it in the last day. He probably would have looked back more on that day as like, well, that's where I lost the Welto. Because really up until that point, until La Covetia and that Flamingo stage, you know, he was pretty unbeatable, really. I mean, even his bad day in the Angleroo, he lost 10 seconds, 10 seconds on the whole climb. And then, uh, you know, for him, you know, picking off those time bonuses, you know, just astute racing really for Roglic. I mean, they're there for the taking. So he was, uh, you know, has, you know, he has that punch that Carapaz and Carthy don't. So he used that to his advantage. You know, whether, whether that's fair or not, we can get into that in a few minutes. But um, I think it was huge. it's a huge confirmation for Yombo Visma just as an organization and as a team. You know, they came in this year really ready to uh, impose themselves on the Peloton. And I think they did, even if you take away the fact that they didn't win the tour. You know, you, we just saw the rankings that came out this week. You know, number one team, you know, number one uh, Roglic. Uh, you know, you got the whole branch of the uh, classics part of that team that like, you know, some of the other uh, big tour dominators in the past, you know, never really worried about the classics. I mean, they even have a sprinter, uh, Dylan Grunewagen, you know, poor guy, you know, he's, he's got his own problems there. We'll see what happens with him next season, but you know, it's a team. It's really a complete team. They got classics, they got sprinters, they have this uh, multiple tour de France level riders. And I think that's one of the big stories of 2020 is, is the emergence of Yumbo Visma. Yeah. And how you can put together a team during an era of another team's dominance and not and kind of kind of do it on the sly. I mean, we saw it coming, you know. You saw all of these guys growing and progressing, but really like good talent identification and then good job bringing these riders along. I mean, Roglic is a diamond in the rough. Gronewagen, he's a huge talent who's been on the rider the radar for a while. Kreuzwick, you know, Dumoulin, that's Kreuzwick's been part, you know, he's the homegrown guy, so that's great. But Dumoulin is sort of the hired hand who is you know, extremely talented. And then a guy like Sepp Kuss, who they obviously saw his talent and worked with him. And, you know, Sepp has always been a very strong rider, but like he took nine steps forward with Yumbo Visma. So to be able to do that during that 2017, 18, 19 seasons, when all the focus is on Team Sky and Ineos, I, I think that's going to be – that's something that other teams are going to look at is like, wow, you know, these guys, they had this huge coming out party at the end of 2019 and then dominated 2020 after like slowly just adding pieces here and there, like little cornerstones to the castle um, starting in 2017 and it, it bore fruit. Um, so, yeah, super cool story on that. You know, I think that this Welta has – there's a couple other stories that I think are really cool. For, for Carapaz, you know – he obviously won the Giro and he did so as a strong rider, but also as something of an opportunist, sort of taking advantage of Nibali and uh, Roglic and their, you know, stalemate against each other. I don't think anyone doubted that he was a Grand Tour star, but to see him finish second place and do so so strongly. And, you know, if they had had another couple mountain stages, he looked really strong there on that La Covetia stage, stronger than Roglic. Like you, you start to ask the question of like, wow, could could he have put it together? We'll never know. But I think this is a huge result for Carapaz uh, to come in as leader of a Grand Tour team that's not the most, not the strongest Grand Tour team. You know, Ineos was not the strongest team in the bunch, and to make a really credible fight for the overall, um, I think that bodes well for him. Oh, without a doubt, <clears throat> huge success for Carapaz. I don't know if you saw that video uh, the team put out of him uh, celebrating with the Equatorian fans there in Madrid on Sunday. He grabbed a grabbed a flag and he was just doing laps around the team bus in front of. Really, there was just thousands of fans there. You know, not really watching the social distancing. They they all had masks on, which is good. But uh, he was he was very happy with his performance and you know what he did to to really lift uh, the team during the tour. You know, they were all in for Bernal. Uh, Egon uh, left that tour early, just got blown out by Yumbo Visma. And he really stepped up and, you know, he was on the attack, you know, there's three or four days in a row in the mountains, uh, got the climber's jersey, lost it that last day to uh, to Pogachar on the uh, final time trial, but helped Kiewikowski win that stage, you know, that last mountain stage when they both rode away from the bunch over that gravel road. You know, pretty dramatic stuff. And then for, come, for him to come into this Welta, uh, you know, I mean, Enios, man, you're right. They did not have a strong team. They had some guy named Chris Froome. I mean, I don't know what his story is, but, but you know, he, he was not the Chris Froome before. And, but, you know, that's another story with Froome. And he came out, you know, Chris Froome comes out of this Welta, 
you know, I, I, for me, I mean, I wrote a piece about this during the world. that like, this is probably the most important grand tour of Chris Froome's life that, you know, he had to get this grand tour into his legs for him to go into next season, you know, over to Israel, cycle, uh, startup nation for, uh, you know, to be a captain there. So Froome was coming out of this well to sound pretty chirpy yesterday uh, on Sunday, you know, is his last, his last ride in an Enios sky Jersey after being there for 11 years, really being the franchise rider. And it just shows really just shows the changing of the guard in that team. It's like Froome's gone. I think I was reading it. Uh, I was looking at the, this, the, the, the roster, the only two guys that remain from the old sky days, or Ben Swift, who left the team and came back, and uh, Garrett Thomas. You know, they're the only two guys that are left from that 2010 team. Um, you know, of course, 2010 is quite a few years ago. But even if I remember at this year's Tour de France, you know, Enios, I think, uh, take away Luke Rowe, the, the newest guy there was from, the oldest guy was from maybe 2016. So it just shows the natural churn and change with any, any top team if it has you know, the, the, the money and the wherewithal to continue to evolve. But, uh, you know, Carapaz, he stepped into that void. And, you know, I think this Welta and how he races the tour really raises his profile on that team. You know, what do you do? I mean, Ineos, you know, they've hired all those other guys. I mean, not everyone knows kind of Richie Port's going to be a helper. You got Adam Yates, you know, you got Teo, who just won the Giro. You got Garen Thomas wants to come back. You got Bernal. Man, they got so many guys. It's going to be interesting to see how they can manage all that firepower. Yeah, I think on a just from a firepower perspective, you could say they are even stronger than Yumbo Visma. Really, it's just going to come down to management of how do you say, okay, you know, Teo versus Garrett Thomas, who's really the leader? You know, Richard Carapaz versus Egan Bernal, you, who's really the leader? And then how do you get everyone to fall in line after that? But uh, I'm with you. It's been this, this Welta especially marked a very interesting chapter into the book of that organization with Chris Froome leaving and Carapaz really blossoming without that much of a tour. Um, here's my question for you. We'd be remiss if we didn't mention EF Pro Cycling and its success at this race. Three-stage wins. Mike Woodsy getting a stage win. Magnus Court Nielsen and uh, Hugh Carthy winning Anglaroo and finishing third place overall. And, you know, every few years we see – and it tends to be at – I feel like at the Welta, like a rider blossoming – into, you know, having a great Grand Tour ride and blossoming into potentially a Grand Tour threat or blossoming him into like, hey, that guy had a, had a great ride. You know, he's not a bona fide real Grand Tour star, but just like made the most of the situation and got there. What do you make of Hugh Carthy? Do you think, do you see him as like future guy that EF is going to be rallying the troops around at, at a Grand Tour? Or do you see him as the guy that, you know, the stars aligned? And he made the most of it, but eh, I don't know if you'd call him a real Grand Tour threat. Yeah, I think it was a highly successful uh, welter for EF. I mean, Michael Woods had probably the best Grand Tour of his life. I mean, I know he wasn't really a factor in the GC, but man, he, the way he was racing was exciting to watch. And of course, he also jumps across to Israel next year. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I think Carthy, you know, winning at the Anglaru, defending in that time trial the way he did, and then finishing in third to me, represents a huge breakout performance for him. And I think just that he will deservedly have more GC support going in the future. You know, maybe not the tour yet, but, you know, another Giro and another Welts. I could put a strong team around Hugh and he could, you know, he was banging on the door for the victory on the very final stage there at La Cabotilla. So for me, I mean, it's, he was just, to me, I think he was like one of the breakout riders of the whole year. And I know we've had a lot of breakout performances in 2020. But I mean, in terms of uh, what what Hugh did at this Welta, I mean, he was definitely the, the the biggest surprise of this race in terms of the GC battle, and uh, just the way he did it. You know, he wasn't following wheels, right? You know, he wasn't like okay, finished fifth of the tour, following wheels. No, he was out there attacking every day, taking chances. You know, he's dropping some haymakers on a few of the stages. You know, really going long, and that might have actually cost him. You know, he's probably at that point in the race, early in the race, I think it was Monta Monta Covilla, or one of those stages. Uh, that he was, you know, kind of attacked from far away, uh, got, you know, then uh, Rilovich came over the top and he ended up losing, you know, quite a bit of time that day, you know, 20, 30 seconds maybe. And, uh, you know, I don't think at that point he was really thinking about the GC. So for him to race the way he did and, you know, he had a really great time trial uh, at that Evero stage where he really defended his uh, his placing there for the podium and really kept him in range really for victory. And for the way he finished off this race, is Hugh Carthy. He's great. He speaks perfect Spanish. 
And I understand him better in Spanish than he does when he speaks English because I don't know. I don't know where that dude grew up, but when he speaks English, man, I need subtitles. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, I mean, as impressive as his win on the Angliru was a couple days later when he pops that fourth place in the time trial, um, that was to me, that was like, that was the head turner. They're like, whoa, you know, it's the final week of a big grand tour. It's a time trial. It's an uphill time trial. This time trial that finished with uphill but like still i mean to be going that strong and to you know only be whatever 25 seconds behind primo's roglitch and a big tt like that like that was that's the thing that you look at and you say ah i think this guy could have a future in it and you know i mean you mentioned it before but when i think back to 2020 in general especially this back half of the season i am going to remember these breakout performances you know 2020 obviously is a weird covid year but um if 2019 was sort of the beginning of the changing of the guard with guys like Remco winning big races and Bernal and Vanderpool. Like 2020 to me was just like the floodgates opening of this generational shift with Teo winning the Giro, Jai Hindley. Um, you know, you just think about so many big rides that happened this year from guys under the age of like 24, you know, this Generation Z thing, Pogacar, uh, Carapaz, like it, to, to me, this is like, this is the generational shift. The era of Chris Froome and Garen Thomas. Sorry, guys. I love you very much. You know, the era of those riders, Nibali, like that's done. You know, like we're moving into, we have, we have moved now into a new era of cycling. It's not to say those guys won't reel off some wins here and there, but it's like, it's not, it, 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 we're not in that phase anymore. Yeah. I would, I would completely agree with you on that. And it's exciting too. I mean, I like the way the, the young riders, man, they, they throw down, you know, they're not afraid. It's not, it seems like a different mentality. You know, it seems like that, uh, I think when you're young, you're, you're not afraid of anything. You know, you haven't lost anything yet. So they're still trying to get what they want. So that's why I think the riders are racing with more, taking more risk. You know, they're making these crazy attacks. They're racing with panache. And I think maybe, you know, once they become more established, then they start thinking, well, you know, uh, they learn from racing that way that it has its risks as well. But the way they're racing right now, just unbridled kind of enthusiasm is great to watch as a fan. Yeah, we're going to continue to watch that as we head into 2021. Um, it's funny. We're like we're putting together our 2021 season preview magazine issue. And um, I mean, do you have any idea what 2021 is going to look like, Andy? I mean, <laughs> can we just – we you know, this COVID thing is still going on. We just had this – bonkers presidential election as we record this like the president is still not admitting that he lost the election i can't even imagine that anyone has an idea what pro cycling let alone the rest of the world is going to look like yeah 2020 was one of those wacky years that's for sure uh, i'm just hoping that there's a you know something important that they came out of this experience uh, the UCI released some interesting stats today about kind of revealing, uh, you know, underlining, you know, how many races actually did happen. Of the races that were canceled as part of the rescheduled calendar, really it was only the Amstel and the, the two Amstel races and the two Prairie stages races were canceled. Uh, very, you know, pretty low number of uh, COVID cases among the peloton. Um, so the big lesson to come out of this season, as wacky as it was, is this whole concept of this bubble. It actually worked pretty well. And they'll fine-tune that going into next season. I've already talked to a few people about how next season might look. And everybody's pretty confident, despite the fact that the, the Perry Robe was canceled. Um, the people I've talked to at the Classics are pretty confident that the Classics will happen um, because they can show to these communities and they can show to the health officials and to the government authorities and say, you know, this is what the sport's done. These are the real statistics from this experience. And it works. You know, a lot of it might be, you know, social distancing. There might not be people on the road, you know, but the racing can happen. And that, that's the big lesson the sport's going to take out of this season into next year. So, you know, who knows? I mean, it all depends on what happens. You know, there's like a second wave right now in Europe. We don't know what's going to happen. But, you know, hopefully, um, you know, we might have another lockdown period. But hopefully by the spring, you know, races might happen when they're on the on the traditional dates. Yeah, I think we're all hoping for that. I wouldn't be surprised to see cycling's push for globalization take a step back. In 2021, we've already seen the Australian races are canceled or are likely to be canceled. Um, I know that the Middle East races may be on the chopping block too. So I could see a scenario in which bike racing, pro bike racing does happen, but it's scaled down and maybe only in like three, four or five um, countries. But I'm with you. You know, 
I think that in America here, we looked at the way that our professional sports progressed with the NBA and its bubble concept in the MLB, and it's not much of a bubble concept. And, and you know, you can look at cycling through the lens and say, well, look, it was an imperfect plan. Obviously, you know, people did get COVID. But by and large, um, the the concept of the social distancing and the bubbles and the limiting media access and everyone's access um, and, you know, trying to curb fans alongside of the road um, – was able to the very least mostly keep riders and people inside the race safe. And if they can refine those methods and learn from some of the mistakes like the Giro d'Italia and, and move forward, then, you know, hopefully we can see a situation in 2021 where the, the races are going again and we're, we're able to get to them. Um, what was the, what was the best race you attended this year, hoodie? When you think back to the races you actually went to, what was the, what was the best race you attended and why? <sighs> Well, I only went to two, at least at least after the uh, That's right. <laughs> after the lockdown. I only went to uh, the Vuelta Burgos, which was uh, that was pretty good. You know, then I went to the tour. <clears throat> excuse me, and um, yeah, the tour was great. I mean, every day of the tour this year was just it was insane in terms of just trying to move around. And actually, in a lot of ways, you know, a lot of uh, what people said was that it was easier because of COVID. You know, there weren't so many media, there weren't so many VIPs, the the fans were kept at bay. So when you talk to a lot of the sport directors and writers, man, they liked it. They loved the bubble. Um, so it was a different season, a different year. Uh, I, I really loved that uh, the stage at uh, Col de Los, the tour. You know, what a great stage that was. I mean, that time trial. I mean, I, I'm not a big time trial fan. I mean, I like time trials. They're part of racing. But that time trial this year year with uh, Pogacar was like I mean that was just you know once once in a decade once in a generation uh, kind of situation so that was pretty cool how about you yeah I mean I didn't get you know like I like everyone else I didn't I didn't go to a single bike race this year this is the first year in a long time that I did not attend uh, a single bike race in fact I think I only left like went on assignment maybe once or twice which was I you know and hung out with Colin Strickland down in uh Austin, Texas, the gravel god to write about uh, his scene down there and situation. And then everything else was just sort of here in my spare bedroom, like we're calling people up on the phone. So um, I'm feeling a little bit like a caged animal. I mean, as much as I love being at home with my family, I can't wait to get I, – I, I want to get back to the events because as much as I like watching the bike races on TV, and this is something for listeners to take note, like there's nothing – quite like being at a big old bike race, being at the Tour de France, being at the classics, you know, like the scene, the culture, the riders, the noise, the feel, the excitement, like it's really hard to, to replace. And it's definitely my sincere hope that that stuff comes back soon. I agree. And, uh, usually in a off season tradition for me, I usually decamp to some third world beach for a couple of weeks to recover. That won't be happening in 2020. <laughs> Thanks, COVID. <laughs> well, we're going to be coming to you throughout the rest of the year. We have some fun stuff like Velo News Awards that we'll be discussing. There will always be the March of News because it is bike racing and there is never a dull moment. Um, but for now, I will let you get back to your afternoon hoodie. And we're going to check in with Christy Moan and Leland Danes. Um, to talk about the name change of Unbound Gravel, formerly DK, formerly Dirty Kanza. Uh, my guests on the Vela News podcast today are Christy Moan and Leland Danes of Lifetime. They are the event manager and marketing manager of the race currently known as Unbound Gravel, formerly known as DK, formerly, formerly the Dirty Kanza, you know the race I'm talking about. It's the big gravel race. And Christy and Leland have had quite the 2020 dealing with the race being called off entirely due to COVID-19, the departure of the race's co-founder, Jim Cummins, and then a months-long rebrand that recently came up with a new name, Unbound Gravel. We're going to get to all of it today. So Leland and Christy, thanks so much for coming on the Vela News Podcast. Yeah, thanks oh, for having us. Our pleasure. So the news that came out uh, about 10 days ago was that the event going forward is going to be called Unbound Gravel. Um, I mean, I know it's a big, broad question, but let's get into the, uh, the, the process of selecting this new name. What did that process 
look like and what were the hardest elements of this name change? <laughs> you want to start us off, Leland, or you want me to? <laughs> well, um, the process, <clears throat> laying out the process was somewhat easy. We knew that we wanted to <clears throat> cultivate a team around us. We knew we wanted to uh, solicit a lot of feedback. Um, so we created a, a committee of, uh, what, about a dozen people, Christy? Yep. That contained Emporia locals. It obviously contained members of our team. Um, and then it also included industry folks, representatives of uh, the industry, writers, sponsors, the like. And uh, we, we had some roundtable sessions. And uh, we, we first started by just brainstorming every, not just name, but word. We had what, six pages, Christy? I don't even know. Words well, we liked. <laughs> <laughs> we, exp I mean, even to expand on that, um, we started off with a survey, just a questionnaire to a ton of people that we just sent out there broadly, just asking people for, you know, general questions. What does this event mean to you? What words resonate with you? What do you think of when you think of the Flint Hills? So it even started broader, you know, at first. And then we kind of just kept paring it down to get, to um, a core group of, of a task force to help us with that. And then taking those names and just like Leland said, it was just a big, massive brainstorming session. That's where it kind of started. I think for outsiders may take something like this lightly of like, oh, it's changing a name. What's that's like not a big deal. I don't I don't get it. Um, in my past life, I was a business reporter with the Sports Business Journal and reported on some like team team name changes, you know, like the hockey team from Atlanta moves to Winnipeg and they have a big brainstorming session of what goes into picking a new name. And it's so much it was so much more complex and complicated than I could have ever imagined because you're trying to like thread a needle and you're trying to accomplish multiple things in a brand name. And especially when you have an established brand name like Dirty Kansas, DK, call it what you will, and you're trying to pivot and keep the legacy of the event and keep the, you know, what the event meant. Um, it, I, when I saw you guys come out with it, it was like that had to have been a phenomenally complicated process. You know, what were some of the boxes you were really trying to check? What were some of the most important boxes you wanted to check with this new name? I think largely was um, what we wanted to make sure that the name did was not – that it protected the legacy of DK and the 15-slash-16-year history that we have there but also give us a way forward to continue telling an amazing story um, because this event is just that it's not just, it's not just a bike race, you know, how you feel when you are out in the Flint Hills and in the Prairie um, capturing that sentiment and giving us the opportunity to continue the storytelling as we move forward became really important. Um, and, you know, that's why some of the simple names that have been suggested really didn't resonate as far as looking forward and telling the story as we keep moving as we as we keep moving forward. We did have several names that were kind of, um, you know, taken off the table, uh, which kept pointing us in this direction of how we move this this event to the next level. Yeah, so that's what I wanted to get to. Like, what were what are some of the cutting room floor names that just didn't make the cut? You know, you don't have to give me all of them, but like, what were some of the ones that come to mind that were like close but no cigar? Oh, things like Flint Hills Gravel. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, like everybody keeps suggesting that one. And I'm like, I know, I know there's a piece of it that's like, it is what it is. But um, if, if you look deeper at our branding and, you know, we're not done telling the story of Unbound. Um, because the event is not over. Um, and if you look deeper at our rebranding of the event, you'll see in our major graphic that all of those words that people are looking for are there. Tall Grass Prairie, Flint Hills, Emporia, Kansas. All of that stuff is there because that's the base, that's the foundation. And what we've got now is what we're pushing to the next 15 years with, so. Yeah, I think just to kind of add to what Christy was saying there, there's, um, there's this connection to where we are, where we always have been, where we always will be in these Flint Hills. But then there's this connection to the world that supports this event. And so another name that I, I don't mind throwing out there, Fire and Flint, mm -hmm. uh, speaks to the Flint Rock and the prairie fires that um, go on every spring. 
Well, when we're chatting to other people, namely those from states like Colorado or California, they're like, oh, that does not resonate well with me. Fire. <laughs> Fires are a bad thing, not a, not a positive thing. And so we could have looked at and said, well, it's a good thing here. Therefore, that's something we want to do. But what we recognized was what um, we've got a global audience. And we want that name to resonate with an audience well beyond the state of Kansas or the Flint Hills area. And so that was a factor in our whole decision process as well. Um, something I also think about, too, is that the the previous name DK and Dirty Kansas were so recognizable with this event that, like, how do you move forward knowing that a lot of participants are still likely to use the old name in discussions or in podcasts or in whatever like is that just something that you know hey we have the new name it's out of out of our control or are you actively trying to you know like what is going to be your process for people still using the old name well it's going to take time right i still i still catch myself uh, saying dk uh, on occasion this <laughs> is uh, you know, my association with the event has been now going on 14 years. This this would have been the 15th running this year. So this next year, we're going into the 16th year of DK. Um, my first participation was in 2008. And so I know it by no other name. And, and we're only a few weeks into this renaming it of Unbound. So it's going to take time. Um, my stance certainly is, is that's okay. Um, it's going to take some time to not only wrap your head around it, um, but get comfortable using that new name and get familiar with it. I think Leland said it very well. <laughs> so much of what this race has grown into over the past years has been fueled by the, um, you know, the challenge of the event, like you said, Christy, the fact that it is this physical, emotional challenge. And also in recent years, the fact that elite athletes have wanted to test themselves, have wanted to win. We've seen world tour riders. We've seen, you know, pro female mountain bikers, really great athletes come here to, to try and win it. Um, how do you preserve that going forward? And does the race's international reputation change at all with this branding uh, change? Well, I mean, some of that has yet to be seen, but I think the, the one thing we feel confident in is what we have that makes this event so great are, are pretty, you know, untouchable, untouchable. One is the Flint Hills. I mean, they're just, they're vast, they're amazing, they're beautiful, and they're completely underestimated, which I think is is a, is a real bonus for people when they come here. And the second thing is, is um, the community support that we get from not only Emporia, but also the surrounding towns. Like this is, this is what people in this region live for and, and want to see happen. And I think that that being able to be connect, so connected as a community um, between the cyclists and the, and the residents of the, of these towns in Emporia, Kansas, it really hits an emotional chord with people, especially right now, is being able to connect to community and to human beings like like that. So that'd be my take on it. I'm sure Leland has perspective. Well, it's much the same. I, I have seen a uh, good friend, Yuri Hoswald has used it. I'm sure others have. But this quote um, from Shakespeare, of course, arose by any other name, right? would be just as sweet. And, and we certainly believe we still have a rose. We think this event is a rose. Uh, we think it's amazing. And uh, the name is not changing any of that. In fact, um, the only changes we would anticipate going into 2021 would be in response to uh, the ongoing COVID situation. Mm -hmm. And it would have nothing to do with the, the rebranding or the name change. And nor should it. A, a name doesn't necessarily have to change unless it changed the core, unless that core needed changed. And ours doesn't. And everything's in place, and um, we will continue to put on a phenomenal event. As Christy said, the Flint Hills are still here. The people are still anxious to welcome everyone back as soon as it's safe and responsible to do so and, and find ways to do that. And um, people are going to have an amazing experience in Unbound. You know, the other big uh, news around the event in 2020 was um, Jim Cummins stepping down as, uh, you know, he's co-founder and he had he was still very much involved in the management. And he stepped down after um, writing some comments on Facebook about a news story. You can read about it online. It was covered very, very clearly. You know, my last time at the event was in 2018. And in that year, I mean, Jim was very much 
figurehead of the race, giving speeches to participants, you know, rah-rah out there, one of the big faces of the race. How does that change going forward for 2021? Does someone step into that position? Do multiple people step into that position? Who becomes sort of the face of this event? Well, I think that um, from the team's perspective, um, Jim definitely was, you know, and, and as we're finding out, was definitely the face of the event. But that we have a super solid team um, that's still very much in place. And um, part of that is to Jim's credit. I mean, you know, we built a team on the aspect of that this event wasn't just about a single person. Um, and, and that's our way forward. Um, you know, it, you're going to see Leland, you're going to see me, you're going to see other, other folks from the community and lifetime stepping up to, to uh, rise to the occasion of that. You know, it wasn't just, and I'm not taking anything away from what Jim has done. It wasn't just Jim at the finish line congratulating people. You know, there was a whole slew of people back there busting their butts um, to make this event what it is. And, um, you know, that's, we're going to continue doing that. I bet you see a lot more of Leland's mug. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, and I think that's an important message for folks is um, Jim did a phenomenal job for the, the years that he was involved. Um, Jim was never alone. He did co-found it with Joel Dyke. And when mm-hmm. Joel Dyke stepped away, Christy and Tim Moan came in the picture. And then a couple years after that, I joined. And, and so Christy and I, who were both former owners of the event, we are still here and we still have a number of amazing people around us and along, along with us. And so, um, none of that should, um, really change for folks. And I think another point to this is, is we're all human as a former ownership team. Um, we know that we will step away from this at some point in time. Mm-hmm. Um, we won't uh, ride this to the grave. Probably um, it was never Jim's plan. It's probably not Christie's plan nor mine. And so when, when we as an ownership team sold to lifetime, I think it's important for people to recognize that that was the best thing we could do to ensure that this event continues to survive, continues to support this community. And Lifetime is an entity who has shown that they can do that and do that very well. And so for me, um, I continue to believe it was a phenomenal move. I'm excited to continue to grow with them for as long as we are able and desire to do so. And um, yeah, it only means that uh, this event is not going anywhere. You know, in my time at the race in 2018, too, I was very impressed by the tight-knit community running the event and the fact that, you know, like you said, Christy, it's not just Jim, it's multiple people and they're working together. And and I could tell that you all had very close relationships, close working relationships, but it legitimately seemed like friendships. Um, How was it then... um, with your personal relationships with Jim after, you know, he made his comments on Facebook, he decided to step away from the race. What was that like between all three, three of you, just as, you know, people who have worked together, who have formed close friendships going forward. I'm really curious how that, how you guys worked through that. Well, I mean, I'm, uh, I'll go first, I suppose. I'm, I mean, it was hard, you know, going over and sitting at Jim's table with him after this transpired, um, was hard because there were, um, you know, I think he felt like he let the team down, um, and, and left us with a little bit of a mess to clean up. Um, you know, knowing, of course we have hindsight behind everything and, and really our focus truly is moving this whole thing forward. Um, but, uh, Jim and, and Susie are part of this community and, and I think Jim is, um, is doing his very best to move on. That's really where um, I sit at the same time too, and wish them nothing but the best for them moving forward. But I think it's, you know, it was not, it wasn't easy for sure. So, and I know Leland had a conversation with them as well. Yeah. I think at the end of the day, it's not the way anyone wanted for Jim, the way that we wanted him to step away. Um, As I was kind of alluding to in my previous statement, we all knew, Jim would be the first to go. That was what uh, predicated the sell um, from us in the first place is Jim was getting on in years and, and we knew that um, the day would come that he'd want to step away. This wasn't the way any of us wanted that to happen. So, um, but we're at a stage now where I feel very comfortable with how we've all, how all parties have moved forward mm-hmm. 
how the event is moving on with the new name and the rebrand. Those are all things I support. Um, and I'm very pleased and very excited for what the future holds for us. Yep. No, I appreciate that, you, you too. I mean, this year has been a trying year for, um, I feel like everyone in the country, I mean, I've had to deal with my own family of people having viewpoints on news stories and politics and, you know, racial justice stories that I personally totally disagree with. And it, it's it's one thing when it's like someone online or someone that you know casually, but it's something else when it's someone who's your friend or your loved one or someone where you can't just say like, well, I'm never going to talk to you again. Like you have that established relationship and you have to like work through it and like try to, you know, have a conversation, you know, communication with the person. So I, I appreciate it. And I think it's something that a lot of listeners and readers have probably have, uh, have, have worked through with their own personal relationships okay. or working relationships in 2020. Um, and I think that's something else that stood out to me about the year in general, which is between your race and then Bobby Wintel's race um, in Oklahoma that being the Mid-South, which is balancing your relationships within the town versus your relationships nationally and globally. And I think that's something that listeners and readerships, the readers have kind of, kind of have gotten lost in the coverage around the rebrand of um, the Mid-South going from Land Run 100 to the Mid-South and your race going from Dirty Kansas DK to Unbound, which is that the, your races are national, are international races in that people know about them all over the place because of media. But your races are still very much tied to the community and the day-to-day relationships that you have with like the shopkeeper and the person in the local government and the, you know, the, the people in this town, in this community that might not have the same global viewpoint or global relationships that you have that give you a different perspective on something like a name brand change. And I'm really curious how you had to work through those conversations with people in the town who may have looked at the original brand and been like, there's nothing wrong with this. This is fine. You guys are, you know, caving to like the people outside the the town wants this. I'm really curious how you guys had to negotiate those conversations too. Well, um, there's there's really been two types of criticisms that I've seen. One is from a group of people who never believed the name should have been changed in the first place. And so, therefore, they were never going to be happy with any outcome that we put forth. Um, understand that. They didn't want it to change. And then there are those who understood that, okay, yeah, I can see this needs to change, but I'm not happy with what you've changed it to. Um and so we're seeing that criticism, in, in my opinion, pretty level equally between locals and non-locals. And I will say this. On the whole, I think the criticism has been pretty light. Um, I think it's been a, a, a vocal minority, really. And uh, you see that pretty intensely for a short period of time on social media, but then it dissipates. And the majority of the locals um, have not been... Uh, that heavily critical. The the major entities that I have to work with as the event manager, um, local government, um, service organizations, um, the volunteer groups that Treva works with, um, they all very supportive. And that is one of the things that makes this event so special is we've got a special community. Um, and while there might be some people within the community of, who have been vocal, they're not the majority. And the key people uh, that really help us move this thing along have been very supportive of who we are and what we stand for. And I, I would add that, you know, we faced a similar sort of criticism um, before the or after the 2018 event, before the 2019 event, when we did go through the acquisition. Um, and, you know, what I say is, like, give us give us the weekend of June 5th to prove you wrong. Um, you know, we, we are a hundred percent sure that we're going to pull off, um, what people expect. Um, so, you know, I think the name just as, as land run 100 went to mid South, it takes a little bit of time for it to stick. And I think one thing that, you know, definitely helps is a race weekend. So, uh, last question for you guys, as we head towards 
2021 and planning for mass participant events in 2021 with uh, COVID not resolved yet. Um, are you guys thinking about things like, you know, staggered starts and socially distanced feed zones? And are you are you looking at ways to try and hold the event amid COVID? Or is the event going to be a, you know, it, it happens if we're able to move past COVID and if not, we're, we're not going to hold it. Where are you guys at with the 2021 event? Well, the easy answer is yes. We, we are thinking of all the things. Um, I like to look at things on a spectrum and I try to find all the, the steps along the spectrum. So on one end, you've got um, this thing is only getting worse. Not, it's not getting better. It's not staying the same. It's getting worse. And so maybe there's no event all the way to we're in a much better position. And I think really, honestly, somewhere along that continuum is a happy spot where we know that there are protocols we can implement, things we can ask of our participants, their support crews and spectators um, to make this a safe environment. And that's what we're currently working towards because we have to, right? Um, today, being eight months or so away from event day, we have to be optimistic and think there's an opportunity for us to do something safe and responsible. Now, along the, that timeline in the months to come, um, we'll continually evaluate and reevaluate where we stand with that. And we do that with speaking with the local health and elected officials. And uh, we form a plan with them as we always have, even before COVID. And so this is great year. Um, but yeah, I'm hopeful. I'm optimistic that we'll be able to do something. It might not be the number of participants we've had in the past. It might look slightly different. Um, but I think that same challenge will exist and that same experience will be there. I think to add to that too is that, you know, we're, we're going to lean into the athletes as well. I mean, if, if we want this event to happen, it's going to be a mutual there's going to be, you know, mutual teamwork on this and, and mutual responsibility to make sure we can do it. So, um, and I think we've, we have a lot of confidence in, in the participants and the community that, that we'll be able to pull this off in some shape or form. Okay. Well, Christy Moan and Leland Danes, I really appreciate you making time to talk to us today and we wish you nothing but luck as you plan for 2021 Unbound Gravel. Yeah.